Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Julian, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. I'll keep it really brief. Um, I come from a fairly non-traditional background when it comes to tech. I went to music school, dropped out. And when I was in Boston, that was kind of when I realized that I there was so much to the world of technology that was beyond just what um, programmers might be building. Uh, there, there's such an opportunity for people who have different skill sets to contribute and to to build the future. So that was the that was the thing that really got me um, into technology was just being in a, a city where there was a lot of technology being built. But you know, I, we can, we can go into different areas of my background. I think that the thing that I've realized quite recently is the thing that gets me really excited is really the intersection of ideas, people, and creation. And that could take a lot of forms. Uh, right now, I'm really focused on people who have great ideas that are building startups around them. I love that. I love that. Um, what in particular about startups makes them so compelling? You know, they're really compelling to me. They're really compelling to you. But to the listener who may be less involved, maybe they work at a big corporation or a government or a nonprofit, what makes startups special? Well, I think that startups in general are fairly permissionless, right? Uh, in the sense that you don't really need to get permission to go and try and build something. And a lot of the infrastructure that keeps getting built um, to allow more people to create things just kind of increases the level of permissionlessness, right? Um, prior to, prior to you know, um, AWS, for instance, Amazon Web Services, you, you really needed to have a significant amount of money um, to actually buy a server and run a server and things like that. Now with AWS, it's just one example. You don't need the permission of somebody who's going to fork over a bunch of money. You could actually get started extremely cheaply. And if you're in a program like something like On Deck, something like that, the AWS actually is partners with all of these programs to essentially give you uh, credits for free. So it costs pretty much nothing to run a server nowadays. Uh, and it's also based on usage versus you know having a fixed server cost. So things like that um, just really allow people to go and create the things that they want to build. And then if you look at something like even like Figma, you know, which was recently acquired, that was a company that you know, was started because of all of this technology that came before it that they were able to build off of. But it also created the platform for other people to go out and make things. Um, you know, Adobe used to be very expensive. It still is. Um, but Figma you know, started out and it was free for, for you know, individual users. So I think that that's, that's one of the big things here is um, as, as time has gone on and as technology has developed, uh, it's been become easier and easier. Well, I should not say easier. It's become cheaper, um, to start startups. It's still very hard, but the challenges, uh, have changed. That makes sense. Uh, what do you think the the challenges have shifted to, you know, you, like you said, we've seen this kind of de- massive decrease in costs. You don't have to buy the big servers anymore. You can just go ahead and get started spinning up a simple web app, you know, probably for free and, and get, you know, tens of thousands of users without having high upfront capital cost. Where do you think the barriers have shifted to now at this point in time? It's a great question. You know, my, my general inclination is that, um, you know, there are a lot of things that were kind of just obvious um, and, and it's more, more obvious in hindsight, but I think were obvious to a lot of people who were early to the Internet. Uh, that was actually obviously before my time. But th- this idea that um, there were so many things that could be built that were kind of like these simple things. Um, and, and now, of course, like all of those simple things have been built and there is usually like 20 different, you know, versions of them. I mean, just think about, you know, some of the some of the things like note taking apps, right? There's going to be more note taking apps in the future. But there also are a lot of note-taking apps that can solve a lot of people's problems. But at one point, there weren't many, right? And at one point, there weren't many. Pl- there wasn't a place to store your photos online, right, or back up your photos or to share your photos, right? So the challenge has gotten to be that you really need to have something that breaks out and, and solves a, a fundamental problem. But a lot of the base problems have kind of been solved. That makes sense. So. How should founders operationalize that? It seems like it is a real challenge that a lot of low-hanging fruit has been picked. But uh, 
the greatest founders, I, I think of like, uh, you know, Parker Conrad at Rippling seemed to find a way to, you know, get behind that kind of event horizon of, of, uh, what is possible. And, and perhaps, you know, for, for Rippling, it's this combinatorial thing where maybe if you could build the entire HR and IT stack together, you could get lower costs. You kind of vertically integrate at some level. Um, what, what do you think the, the right framework is for founders to use to find those new ideas? Sure. So I think there's there's two things. And the first is really thinking about, if you're thinking about it from an investor perspective, um, you really want to think about not just the founder, but you want to think, think about the market that they're building in. And traditionally, what people say is bet on the founder or invest in the founder. And it's really all about the founder. And yes, like it really matters that the founder is a good founder, that they think about things the right way, that they are driven, that they can hire, that they can retain talent, that they can manage potentially if they're going to be the CEO. But the the other thing that I think gets a lot uh, that doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves is the market. And you know when you when you brought up Parker, he's the exact example of a person who thought so deeply about the market and the need for a, a different type of solution in the market or the opportunity for a different type of solution. So I think it really comes down to evaluating the market. And that, that comes from the founder perspective. You know, do you really want to spend your time if you're a, you know, an exceptionally talented person? Do you want to spend your time banging your hand against the wall of a market or an opportunity that doesn't really exist? Or is there or is, or is it worth your time to actually, you know, figure out in advance what kind of market should I be building and what opportunity should I be pursuing? And then also like there there's this debate as to whether or not, you know, um, sort of like markets are sort of like willed into existence or like opportunities are willing, willed into existence. I generally think that that's true. Um, it takes, you know, there, there, as you said, Rippling is a good example of a place where there's an ultra saturated market. Uh, a lot of people would have argued that the opportunity didn't exist. But, you know, if you can see an interesting angle and then you actually can will it into existence, then there's usually a big opportunity in a market where there's, you know, low NPS. I love that. I love that. Um, how much do you think luck luck plays into these things, um, and, and how much of it is just uh, willing things into being at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that ultimately you have to be you have to be lucky, um, but 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 at the end of the day, it's like it really does come down to uh, a combination of things, right? Um, there's a, there's a really good song uh, that I like that I can link to that, that essentially just shows that like, yeah, yes, ultimately there is some, uh, determination where, where it has to do with you know, the work that you put in the people that you hire, but you can't predict everything that's going to happen. And, and ultimately, you know, it luck, luck does play a factor, but willing into existence is really a thing that, 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 uh, I think, you know, people don't want to accept, uh, is actually the, the main, the main form of the outcome, the main thing that drives the outcome. Well, and we can't control luck, so it seems like uh, you know it's something that's that's best like ignored at some level. Um, you can only control your inputs. Um, I, I'm curious when you first got started. Let's say with On Deck, sure. You know how much of a hunch did you have that it was going to be you know a big deal and that you were gonna you know build a really great company around it? Um, were you were you sure really sure when you got started? Did it like did you have these hunches along the way? Like what, what did that kind of look like? Yeah, so I think that it it, it worth it's worth uh, going over the history there. So you know, Ondeck started as a community um, that my co-founder Eric uh, built, and it was really just casual dinners, happy hours, that sort of thing for people who were looking to explore starting a company, and or or even explore what was next. Maybe they were looking at leaving their job, and maybe starting a company was one of the options. But it was this very inform, informal community for people to explore what might come next, and that was a really powerful idea. As it turned out. There were a lot of people who maybe they were at a job that they didn't care for that much or they felt you know wasn't actually going to really take them to the place that they wanted to be. And having a space for like-minded people or people who are in the similar sort of time in their lives was really important. Um, I think that the, the thing that was very interesting about OnDeck is that people were essentially trying to pull a product out of us. As I started running dinners, um, David, uh, OnDeck CEO, started running dinners as well. And these were all just informal affairs. But people kept trying to get us to do something that was a little bit more structured than these one-off dinners and happy hours. And that was really interesting because people were trying to, we felt this pull, right? And the pull ultimately meant that we were able to 
build something that people wanted because they were telling us specifically what they wanted. And now ultimately, we've had to do a lot of iterations on that, but it, it pretty much directly led to the On Deck Founder Fellowship, which is remains our flagship program, you know, four years or, or so after, after starting the company around On Deck. And, you know, we're in our 15th cohort coming up. We've seen so many incredible companies get started out of it, somewhere around 800 at this point. They've raised a billion dollars. And ultimately, I think it really comes down to like, Sure, there were a lot of there are a lot of people working in sort of the accelerator space, but there were almost no one. And and still to this day, it seems like, in my opinion, a very uh, big opportunity is the pre-accelerator phase. Um, accelerators, you need to have a co-founder, you need to have an idea. Typically, you need to have traction. And what we said is, we said, hey, there are a lot of people, uh, potentially a lot more people that are starting companies today, who might get off the sidelines, who might get off the fence if we actually help them find the missing pieces, right? So maybe if we could help you find a co-founder or if you could help you figure out your idea or if you could help you figure out what your go-to-market might be, maybe that's the difference between you starting a company or staying at your job. So ultimately, I think that there was there was a lot of, of the product pull there and this novel idea, which was, hey, we can actually increase the amount of founders if we just help you know catalyze creation of companies. I love that. I love that. What what lessons do you think uh, founders can draw from that when they're they're building products? And you're right. Is it something like you know you need to be in the search space for a while, and and uh, something will make itself clear given enough time if you work hard? Or is there there's something else to draw from that? So I think the answer is is, is annoying because it depends. Um, <laughs> ultimately, some people have these insights that they've somehow gotten through work or through side projects and things like that or through conversations with friends or family members. But ultimately, uh, far far more people end up having to go back to the drawing board multiple times. And I think one of the biggest uh, the biggest mistakes that we see um, is the people who go out there, they, they have e- extreme conviction when they probably shouldn't. Um, they're kind of lying to themselves, and they go out and they try and raise money. They might even succeed in raising money, which is actually, in my opinion, one of the, one of the worst things, because that almost validates this idea that they have a good idea um, because because now people are giving them money to go and pursue it. And then ultimately when that happens, it means that they're kind of driving themselves down the, down this one way path. And it's a lot harder to rewind and a lot harder to sort of start from scratch again. So what we try and do at on deck and I try to do when I'm just working with founders one-on-one is really try and encourage them to not go with the first or second idea, unless they have extreme pull uh, towards the idea from customers or something like that. And really try and figure out, you know, what it is that they should be building um, and not just immediately jump into it. Same thing goes for co-founders. Yeah, I, I think that generally speaking, you shouldn't just go with the person that you've happened to have worked with who may be interested in starting a company. Um, you shouldn't necessarily go with the first person that you talk to. I know it's it sounds probably very silly um, to some people in the audience who are a little bit further removed from, from tech startups, but there are a lot of people who just end up going with the person who happens to be closest to them at the time that they decide that they want to start a company. And it usually doesn't go well. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like getting married. Uh, you know, when you just yeah, you, somebody walks in, and he's like, "Let's get married for fifty years. It'll be great." And you can yeah. have vetted each other. Pretty much. Not, not, not a good idea. Um, speaking about that, how do you go about finding a great co-founder? How would you recommend people do that? Is it uh just you know iterating more, having more conversations, and finding someone that's a good fit, and not taking that first person? Is there more to it that you recommend? So I think there's a there's a couple of things. Um, one thing that I like to say is align on values before aligning on ideas. And this is this is you know again it might sound it might sound silly to people, but you know really describing sort of what the ideal outcome is to someone else, you know, a potential co-founder is important, right? The idea that you might not want to sell your company for $20 billion. You might want to actually take it public. or and it, and it might sound like putting the cart before the horse, but I don't think it's actually true because there will be some people where they get an offer for what could be a life-changing amount of money. Uh, and they will they will want to turn it down because they want to continue to build this really big organization. But the other co-founder might actually you know want to want to sell. And I don't think that either of those are actually bad necessarily as long as there's alignment between the founders on what they want. Another thing is, you know, very common, which is like work-life balance, right? Um, First of all, I think that founders 
really don't have the opportunity um, to have much of a work-life balance. But when they think about sort of their hiring their team and things like that, or of course, like remote versus in-person versus hybrid, these are all important things. And then, of course, just like how to treat people, um, sort of like what what, is, what are the cultural values? Um, I think it's really important for companies to have non-values as well, which is this idea of sort of what the company isn't about. Um, or reasons that you might not want to work at the company. But I think aligning on these things is actually much more important because ultimately the idea and sort of the, the product creation process usually will happen after you've sort of aligned on your co-founder. It's usually not a thing where you go out and you figure out your idea and then you go and recruit a co-founder. This happens occasionally. Uh, but generally speaking, I recommend that founders have some ideas or have some interest spaces but don't necessarily kind of get really aligned or don't really figure out exactly what they want to build until they have the co-founder that they want to build it with. And then they go and they co-create the idea together. That makes sense. So you're, you're kind of iterating the search space together after you have a partner that can help you, help you check your thinking, et cetera. It does exactly. seem to me like that that's super valuable because if you have someone else checking your thinking, it's easy to have one person who's a kook, but it's harder to have two people or or more people than that, you know? I think it's good. I think it's also good to have, I mean, being kooky is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it's like, if you are aligned in your kookiness, I think that's really good. Um, founders in general, I think are just kind of weird, or at least some of the, the most interesting ones. And, you know, I think you need to be weird together, right? If, if you're weird and the other person isn't very weird and you don't really get along, um, in that way and you don't sort of see eye to eye on these kind of like, probably I would describe them as eccentricities. Um, if you don't, if you don't sort of have those aligned, I think it's, it becomes a lot harder to actually build something sustaining together. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I'm curious, how important do you think it is to be mission driven at the end of the day when you're building these, these breakout companies? I think it depends because, um, there, there's really two, in my opinion, there's two types of founders. There's the ones who really love the problem that they're working on. And there's the ones who just really love building businesses and problem solving more generally. I think it's, um, I think it's a lot harder to be, um, one of the founders who really cares about the mission of the company, um, at the earliest days because the mission might slightly change. Change. Given, given the nature of, you know, early stage startups, they haven't found product market fit. So, so they might ultimately morph into something that the founder is less excited about. Um, having said that, I think that if you are mostly directionally keeping it, keeping it going in, in the way that you, you thought you were when you're going into it, I do think that that's generally good, right? Um, I, I heard some, some story about how, you know, for instance, Dylan Field with Figma, they were trying to build something that was like a meme generator, you know, to start when they, when they dropped down to the Teal Fellowship. And they just weren't excited about it. You know, they realized, like, is this the thing that we want to spend the next, you know, a few years of our lives on building a meme generator right. company? Now, there are probably people in the world who that's extremely fulfilling for, right? Who love comedy, who think that comedy and sort of like spreading interesting ideas and jokes across the internet is really valuable, right? Um, but it wasn't for them. So I think it's really important to figure out, like, what's the thing that actually gets you excited and motivated and, and ideally your co-founder as well, because ultimately, if there's misalignment on that, that's a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty big challenge. Yes, it, it seems like uh, quite an issue. Um, I, I'm curious, you guys have been quite successful at merging co-founders together, helping people find co-founders, which kind of went against the grain in Silicon Valley and in tech that you know, you had to have known your co-founder and grown up in the womb together or something like that to, to truly be successful. Um, uh, how did you guys realize that that was kind of a $20 bill on the sidewalk? Was it just like seeing a couple of examples of it work where people had kind of engineered that kind of serendipity? Or was it just like, uh, I, I don't know, I, a, a thought you came up with kind of from first principles? You know, I think it's definitely one of those things where you start to see it happen. And, you know, when it's when it's once it's like an anecdote, but like you actually start to see a trend and, and that that's when you get really excited about it. But I, I also think that this is a thing that, yes, we we discovered um, we've had a lot of success with. And I would say that some of our fastest growing companies, I think I looked and it was something like 10 out of the um, the top 20 or something like that. Uh, companies in terms of amount raised were actually one of the co-founders, at least one of them. Sometimes there are three co-founders met the other co-founder or co-founders through on deck. So it's, nice. it's just a, it's just a very surprising thing to see how these pairs have actually done really well at fundraising. And usually, you know, the conventional wisdom is 
it's hard to fundraise if the co-founders don't really have this deep long-term relationship where they've known each other. As you said, you know, they, <laughs> they've been coding together since they were in the womb. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that shift happen, but it's not a shift that has gone unnoticed, right? Because about a decade ago, there's a video of Paul Graham talking about, you know, whatever you do, make sure you only work with a co-founder who you've had some prior work experience with that you, you know, have had a relationship with. Right. And that was really, I think, the operating principle for YC when it came to them screening applications for the most part for, for quite a while. And obviously, there were exceptions to that, but that was the general advice given. If you look now, they have a co-founder search tool, right? Um, right. You know, on, on deck does a lot of co-founder matching. There are other people who are now in the co-founder matching game as well. And you know, seeing YC take that shift from, hey, like make sure that you have worked with this person before, before co-founding a company with them, to like actually having a, a tool out there um, is a really big sign, in my opinion, that you know that things have shifted and that. Um, everybody is acknowledging that, even people who used to have a hard and fast, a fairly hard and fast rule about it. Yeah, that makes that makes makes a ton of sense. I, I'm curious: are there pairings you've seen that work really well? Kind of like two in the box, you know? Maybe it's one's more business minded, one's more technical. Are there other other pairings that seem to work really well? That or or is it just kind of there's very little pattern to these things? So this is less about um, co-founders that meet through on deck, but just more about co-founders in general. I, I think that. The, the biggest sort of red flag, if you will, is when people, uh, you, you can't tell who the CEO is. Oh, that's not good. If you can't tell who the CEO is, um, that means that, and usually that means like when somebody says that they're the CEO and it kind of feels awkward, uh, you can kind of feel this awkward oh, energy. No. Um, when that happens, that, that shows that there isn't necessarily a, a huge amount of alignment and sort of happiness around that decision necessarily, or there's some sort of hesitance. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest things. In the early days, it's very important to define who the CEO is. Um, if you don't have that happening, you end up with all sorts of weird things going on. And, and ultimately, I think that's probably one of the biggest causes of co-founder breakups is the fact that people actually wanted to be the CEO. You know, they, they, they weren't the CEO. Maybe they should have been the CEO, by the way. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have been um, the person who wasn't CEO. Uh, but, but ultimately, that, that is one of the things I think is important to look for. Uh, another is, you know, I think it really depends on the business, sort of the skill sets. Ultimately, there is going to be a need to be a person who is kind of running the sales and like building out sort of like the org and fundraising and things like that. And there needs to be a person who's building the product. Um, you know, they, they don't have to be technical and non-technical pairs, right? There could be two people who are very technical and one of them happens to be, you know, sort of the CEO of the business and is, is running sort of the sales stuff and actually like doing the fundraise. Um, so I don't think it really matters quite so much, you know, technical ability. Uh, but I do think that generally speaking, it's extremely hard to start a company if they're, you know, one of the co-founders doesn't have some pretty significant technical skills. Need to be able to build something, it seems like. Yeah. Makes sense. No, I mean, um, it, it, it is changing slightly because, you know, people are able to prototype and to build like fairly substantial things using the lower no code. Um, I think this, you know, when we're talking about kind of the, the barrier points to actually starting companies, um, no code has been absolutely huge for that. Um, you could build a lot of infrastructure. In fact, on deck, I don't think that we wrote a line of code for the first year of on deck as a company because we were just using zaps and we were using Airtable and our admissions process, um, you know, was, was pretty sophisticated at the time. But and we were able to build a, a really great business um, using all of these, you know, off the shelf tools that we then, you know, duct tape together. Can you talk about what no code is uh, for, you know, people in the audience that might not be aware? Sure. So, so no code is this, uh, what I think is one of the most important but under-discussed developments in technology, which is essentially giving people the ability to uh, interact with data, interact with websites, interact with like various applications in a way that used to be restricted um, to people who could interact with these things at the code level, meaning they would actually have to write code. Um, another word for code might be a script um, to trigger different actions if something happened. So for instance, um, a really basic example of this would be somebody, every time you receive an email, having the email be logged to a database, um, for instance, a Google Sheet, right? 
um, or in, in more more common cases nowadays, we use a, a product called Airtable, which is kind of like uh, Google Sheets, but better uh, for people who are going to be interacting with um, non non number um, non number data. So, for instance, names or cities or statuses, right? Um, and the idea is, you know, we could you, in the past, you would have had to actually write code to be able to trigger something that would happen every time you received an email to log it into Google Sheets or, you know, an Excel file or something like that. But now with with the tools that exist, you can actually have stuff like that um, happen and you can and you can sort of program that, but program that without not knowing how to write any code at all. And that is such a big unlock, because while that example is very simplistic. It's like, well, who cares? Like you can, you know, shift some data from an email to um, to Airtable or to Google Sheets really easily. You can actually build an entire admissions process um, with email flows, with um, automatic automatic updates, with different pings to people in Slack if they need to fill something out. Like you can actually build an admission, like a modern admissions org, for instance, um, like we did it on deck without writing a line of code. And that's just crazy. And you can you can do that with all of these tools that already exist out there. Now, granted, they might cost a little bit of money, but um, developer time costs a lot of money, right? So, so I think that's really important to note that no code has kind of allowed people to develop these skills that would have been restricted to developers. And the other thing that's quite exciting about no code is that I mean, ultimately, everybody on your team now has way more ability to to create things and build infrastructure that that is going to be very stable and that's going to work quite well uh, within your org. So you're no longer having to wait for the dev team to go and build something um, that helps you with you know internal processes or external processes. That's great. How, how do you know when it's time to uh, start writing actual code? You know, because you can scale up these infrastructures with no code tools to, to a really surprising degree. But but when do you decide when it's time to actually you know go hire some developers and start building something? Sure. So I think there's two there's two things. One is um, I'll, I'll talk to sort of the founder side of things, like when founders are kind of prototyping, and then I'll speak to the sort of like the actual like building a product, building a business side of things. So oftentimes, this is what you see when you're looking at uh, non-technical founders. They're like, I can't get started on my company. Like I'm looking for a co-founder who's technical, who will build this idea that I have, this amazing idea that is, if I were somehow to get a a co-founder who's a technical co-founder, we would have a multi-billion dollar company, right? Um, And you just have to trust me uh, non-technical uh, co-founder or potential technical co-founder that if you join me and you use my idea, you're going to have such an amazing time and we're going to you know go to the promised land together. We're going to make so much money. Um, this is a really, really bad sales pitch <laughs> um, because as anybody who, who works in startups knows, it takes a, an extremely long time to actually find true product market fit. Um, when you, when you think you have it, you usually don't. And, exactly. uh, and, Ultimately, you know, this, this, um, technical co-founder or potential technical co-founder is signing themselves up for potentially years of working with this person. And that person hasn't necessarily proven themselves yet. Um, so what you could do now as a, you know, a non-technical quote unquote co-founder or founder is you could actually go and say, here's my idea. And here's the, the little no code prototype that I built, right? And I drove some people here, you know, either using, you know, some some mailing lists that I built up or um, I use some Google, you know, or Google or Facebook ads to like just drive some test audience to this uh, landing page. And, and you can actually start to show that as a non-technical person, you have proven that there's interesting demand. Um, you've proven that people are, you know, clicking around on this prototype. And that ultimately makes you extremely desirable because you've put in the work. Uh, now people are saying, okay, this person hustles. They don't know how to code, but yet they put together this you know, pretty janky prototype. And now that's uh, showing me that they actually understand a little bit about product. They're not just saying they understand product. And they've actually built something that people are using or interacting with. And that actually, and that, that thing that they've built actually seems quite compelling, even though it's not, you know, the most beautiful thing. So, so that's the first piece is I think it's important for founders, uh, especially non-technical founders to do that. But also technical founders are increasingly realizing that um, starting with no code as a way to prototype is just so much better than diving into code and, and, you know, getting into the weeds so quickly. So, so that's, that's one piece. And the other is 
know, when it comes to actually switching from uh, code to, or no code to code, I think that it really depends. You know, like on deck, honestly, um, you know, our admissions process, um, we switched to, you know, internal internal tooling that we built. Um, and there are a lot of issues with it. Um, and I think it's actually way better um, to have, maybe we should have stuck with Airtable or maybe we shouldn't have moved off of um off of the product fully or the, the no code product fully and instead do, you know, we maybe could have done more of a slow transition. So I think that there's, um, there's a lot to be said for even when you think it might be time to move off, maybe it's not. Um, and then of course there are many examples of businesses where it's like, okay, we should probably just be building this thing, um, you know, from, from day one with, with custom code. Uh, it doesn't make sense to, to be, you know, building no code stuff. If we, if we feel like we're, we already have a pretty strong insight into the customer and that sort of thing. And the no code tools can't, you know, can't do everything. So it's good sometimes to, you know, to, to go right into it. So perhaps if you're building, you know, a quant fund, no code tools might not quite be it. But if you're yeah. uh, for plenty of other things, there, there's great applications there. How do you recommend uh, founders navigate the search space to find product market fit and iterate quickly in the beginning? Is it just iterating as fast as you can, trying to talk it to as many users as you can, or is it something else? So I think that there's um, there's two things there. The first is um, product market fit usually isn't a thing that people even are looking for until like series a series b stage um there there you know just to just to really emphasize uh what i mean by that um you could have millions of dollars in arr and you could still not have found product market fit like true product market fit right so there are companies that that i know that are you know they they have a ton of revenue but they they admit to themselves like it's not like they, they don't have blinders on they they don't think that they um that they have figured this out yet and I think that that's really important for people to realize is that that doesn't happen anytime soon. And almost any time that a founder says that they have product market fit and they haven't, you know, gotten much further along in terms of org building, uh, in terms of, you know, like fundraise and things like that, it's almost always untrue. Now, obviously there are exceptions, but for the most part, I think that it's, it's something that founders should be should should just be like very cognizant of the the second thing is um i think it really just comes down to it it, it might sound trite but like really making sure that you're building things that people want to pay for right i think that this is this is the main thing is like um the, i think the mantra yc's mantra is build things people want but you really need to actually quantify that like how much do they want it you know how, how much do they want it how 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 long will they want it for right um, like sustainability of being able to actually build something that people want to stick with, um, is, is extremely important. Right. So I think that those are, those are really important factors to consider. That makes sense. Can you talk a little bit more about the companies that, you know, do have millions of dollars in recurring revenue that, that might not have product market fit? What, what do you mean there exactly? Is it that perhaps they're able to make uh, sales, but it's, it's not really exactly jiving with their customers. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a big difference between having one to two million ARR and you know breaking into the next into the next hurdle like ten million ARR or something like that. Um, there's also a big question about retention, right? Just okay. because you have you have that revenue right now doesn't mean that you know you're not going to churn through um, you know in six to twelve months. So I think there's just a really big question as to whether or not revenue now means that you're going to be a successful company you know five years from now. And, and I think that that's the other thing is like, also, you know, there's, it's not like nobody else is building, um, while you're building. So just because you're building something now that people are kind of enjoying doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to come out and sort of like, you know, knock over your apple cart. Yeah. And you definitely want to try and avoid that if at all possible. Defensibility seems, seems quite important. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I don't, I don't think that companies typically die, um, due to competition, but they definitely die if they stop building and they stop, you know, stop creating things that people want because the things that people want and need will shift as, you know, uh, different workflows change or as the world changes. I mean, you know, not not to pick on any one company by name, but there were a lot of companies that were started during the pandemic to solve pandemic problems. Right. Um, and a lot of those problems kind of went away as the pandemic has receded. So, you know, and, and ultimately they were raising at extremely high valuations, 
um, because people were using the thing like create the things like crazy. Right. But, you know, once once we started to, you know, get rid of lockdown, once people started to actually be going back to spending a lot more time IRL, um, some of these pandemic problems kind of vanished. And so that's an, another another example of like, well, maybe you had product market fit. Um, but, you know, when external conditions change, like product product market fit can evaporate. And you need to you need to be aware of that um, as a founder going off of that. You know, we've seen a lot of companies shift to remote first after the pandemic. Do you think we've kind of reached an equilibrium there for companies where, you know, we've barring, you know, huge innovations from meta or something like that? Um, it, it seems like we've kind of reached this kind of stable, maybe it's 20% of jobs are remote, but it's like, will it shift drastically in the future? It doesn't really feel like it. Um, but, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Well, what do you think about that? So I can't speak to, you know, huge organizations. I don't feel like that's my expertise. What I will say is that, um, you know, we, we do the best that we can, right. Um, with, with sort of the situation that we have, right. So ultimately, People started companies and built with co-founders and teams that they couldn't, you know, be in person with during the pandemic, you know, at the height of the pandemic. At the same time, I don't think that anyone would say that all things being equal, it's good for co-founders to not be working in the same office together, right? Um, now, if, if that's like the thing that's barring you from working with a really exceptional person, then it's worth considering, right, doing a remote startup and things like that. Um, but generally speaking, I think that the earlier the team is, the more important it is to be in person. And then as teams grow, then maybe you can have some sort of hybrid policy. I'm not particularly, I'm not particularly like dogmatic about any of this. I generally think that it's important to be in person with your co-founders though. I mean, on deck, everybody thinks about it as a remote company because sort of our, our second chapter has really been entirely remote. But we started out entirely in person. All of our events were in person, right? So ultimately, and, and the team was in person. So ultimately, what happened is we we shifted when the market shifted to to remote, right? Um, and to you know Silicon Valley in the cloud. I think that we were probably the people who who actually who actually coined that phrase. But ultimately, you know, we're, we're talking about well, or some, somebody asked me recently, like, are, are tech hubs? Is Silicon Valley is a hub gone? And I said, well, I don't think that Silicon Valley as a hub is gone, uh, but I think that there are many new hubs, right? And the internet kind of connects them all. And I think it's important for you to be in, um, if, if at all possible, it's important for you to be in one of the major hubs, uh, physical hubs. But you should also not discount the fact that you know, the cloud is, is extremely important. Um, and some of the some of the stuff that's happening, especially in Web3, for instance, I think that like the cloud is more important. Um, but but ultimately, if you can be somebody who's building in Web3 um, and be really active in the cloud, but also in Venice or in Brooklyn, where, you know, Web3 seems to have congregated, like it certainly doesn't hurt. It definitely helps. It do you think the 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 benefit to being in person is mostly just like lower communication cost? Um, you know, you don't have to opt in. To, you know, we don't have to like hop on a Zoom to talk to each other. We're just right across the table from each other, and so information just you know shares more quickly. Do you think that's primarily the benefit for you know companies that are co located together? I think it's I think it's actually less that and more the idea that the best ideas and the best conversations and the best breakthroughs often don't happen because they're scheduled on a calendar. Right. Um, you know, I, I can't think of any like breakthrough idea that came through a scheduled meeting, really. Like um rel- relative to the stuff that just happens completely surreptitiously, right? Um that to me is is the really important stuff. And I think it gets it gets way, way kind of underrated or like I think the people don't want to acknowledge that. When they're thinking about the cost of remote, they're like, hey, it's actually easier. We can be async. We can get stuff done all the time. And look, I, I don't think that there are, I, I, I'm not going to be one of those people who says there's no benefits to remote. There certainly are. Um, but you also have to be like, you know, wide eyed about the, um, you know, the, the, the downsides, the, the cost of it. There's costs as well. Definitely. Um, I want to talk about Web3 a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Um, NFTs and DAOs in particular. You, you've been involved in a very large DAO, I believe. Constitution DAO. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Um, what do you think the bull case is for NFTs and DAOs within the next like 10, 15 years? So 
I think that the uh, the the interesting thing about NFTs is it really is the first time that that I'm aware of um, where you could actually own a thing that's digital uh, and that it's not restricted really to um, to any particular platform, right? Um, that I think is quite interesting. I think that we haven't really even gotten close to figuring out the implications of that, um, both positive and maybe there's some negative ones, right? Um, but I think that there's something very unique about that. And that's that's about all I'll say about kind of NFTs specifically um, and, or as like a broader category. NFT art, I think, is absolutely fascinating, right? You go you go from looking at DeviantArt. I, I think we're about the same age. DeviantArt, you know, is this website when I was really young that people would post all sorts of digital art for the most part. It was digital art that they created and then they would make no money, right? Um, now you could have people who create digital art and you actually have a way to, to monetize that and actually have patronage around digital art. And I think that that's really cool. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a music school dropout. So I really like the idea of giving people ways to, um, to, you know, be creative and be rewarded for being creative. Um, when it comes to DAOs, you know, I, there, DAOs is essentially as, you know, as broad as saying like C Corps. So it's, it's really hard to, to talk about DAOs broadly. Uh, but you know, constitution DAO is this example that I can give just like quick background. Um, we saw that a copy of the U S constitution was going for sale at Sotheby's. Um, we had about a week, uh, we decided that we wanted to try and raise uh, money to put in a competitive bid to buy and essentially co-govern a copy of the U S constitution. Uh, and anybody could put in any amount of money that they wanted and be a part of that experiment. And we raised about $47 million in the span of well, it was under a week because we we decided we were going to do it. The auction happened a week later, but we actually couldn't start taking payments until maybe two days in. So about five days, we raised $47 million. Um, I think that this is a really interesting thing because it shows that people can't... We lost, by the way. Punchline, uh, we, we didn't win. Um, somebody outbid us, $47 million. Um, it was not enough money, as Jeez. it turned out. Um, <laughs> but but you know, I think the thing that we realized was, gee... This is this is interesting for a few reasons. One, it's bringing people together um, to rally around something um, that really wasn't financially motivated. You know, nobody was thinking about, oh, I'm going to buy a cop a piece of the constitution, and that piece of you know that piece of the uh, the governance token that I that I purchase is going to be worth something in the future. I really don't think people were thinking about it that way. They were thinking about this is amazing. Imagine what would happen if. You know, a bunch of people came together, you know, were able to uh, acquire this really important artifact. They were able to just, you know, decide on its future. We might want to display it, uh, do a traveling roadshow with it and display it in certain contexts. We might want to lend it out to different museums. I think it's just such an interesting, such an interesting idea. And I think people got really enamored with that. Um, the other thing is, you know, it, it was it was the first DAO um, to bid at this sort of auction level, um, ever. And, you know, we, it was the largest amount of crowdfunding raised for a physical object of all time. And I hope that that's not the end of it. I hope that that's just the beginning, but you look at people who are trying to do things that are, you know, adjacent. There's people who are trying to buy an NBA team uh, as a DAO, right? And think about how cool that would be. You know, I'm not even a basketball fan, but I'm just so enamored with the idea of, fans being able to co-own an NBA team and be able to be involved in a lot of it. And if you think about that, it's like, well, especially if it's a team that's not particularly popular right now, if you could actually change it to become the internet's team instead of like the New Orleans Pelicans, well, that actually starts to really open up um, the audience space, right? Because you might be somebody who lives in a country where there aren't any, you know, professional basketball teams of note. And now you can actually have your own basketball team, right? You could be a part of that. So I don't know. I, I'm just very excited about the creative aspects of this and the ones that are less speculative in nature. I love that. I love that. And this distributed ownership does seem to be uh, less speculative and very interesting. Some of this kind of distributist approach to, you know, spreading out um, organizations instead of having them concentrated within, you know, one person's hands or a couple of person's hands. That's right. And it's, it's also just absolutely chaotic. And that's kind of fun, right? Um, you know, ultimately, <laughs> had we won the Constitution, I think that we would have done you know, right by right by the document and the importance <laughs> right. of the document, but you know, it, it wouldn't have been without without its own challenges, right? Um, so, so in a way, we we lost, uh, but we were able to make a lot of impact 
um, in terms of how people think about DAOs, how people think about Web3, how people think about the relationship with the Constitution, which is actually quite funny. I think that a lot of people were thinking about it much more um, in that week and, and sort of afterwards than they had previously. I love that. Well, do you, uh, what do you owe your success to um, the DAO itself? What do you think uh, we can owe the success to raising so much so fast? Is there something like super mimetic about, you know, the constitution itself? It's this physical object, you know, and it's this really cool idea and we live in troubled times. Do you think that really (laughs) contributed to it? Or was there like really, uh, was it well, really well planned and executed in the short amount of time you had? Well, I think it's one of those things where um, when you have, when you have something that like resembles product market fit, you can fuck up a lot of things. Oh, I don't know if we're allowed to swear, but you can fuck up a lot of things, <laughs> um, you know, and it will still it will still like go quite well because there's just so much pull. I think that's kind of what happened with Constitution Down. We had a lot of challenges. Um, I mean, as you would imagine, trying to raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars yes. in a week uh, and ha- prior to, you know, that week, not having even met, you know, two thirds of the people that you were going to be working with very closely. Um, so so we had a lot of challenges, but. Ultimately, I think it's like one, it's there is the meme, right? Um, two, there is the dream. The, the the meme is so is so important because uh, that's the thing that that's sort of like the jokey part, right? And jo- people love jokes on the internet, right? People like jokes slightly slightly less than they like you know anger and outrage. Um, but ultimately, like you know, we were able to we were able to really focus on the jokes um, side of it to get people excited. Um, then the dream is really, there's a couple of dreams, right? There's the dream of what might happen if we actually accomplish this, like how crazy would that be? Right? Like, um, what would that mean for the internet? What would that mean for web three? What would that mean for society? Quite honestly. Right. Um, and then there's also like the American dream, right? And the, the American dream, uh, everybody, no matter, you know, where they live, you know, where, where they're from, do they live in the U S or the U S citizen? It doesn't really matter. Everybody has some sort of connection to the United States. Um, and that could be a really great, uh, relationship with the United States where they feel like America was the land of opportunity, um, for their ancestors. They could also feel the exact opposite that America has let their ancestors down. And both of those points of views were actually represented in participants in Constitution DAO, uh, because people really liked this idea that this was sort of a, a, a way of interacting with the American dream, um, a way of interacting with our, our country's history or, or the United States history. And I think that that was, um, was something that really resonated with people as well. It's really symbolic. Yeah, I, I love the concept, and it's very vivid in one's imagination to think about. Um, very cool. Well, Julian, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. I've got one last question for you. Sure. Uh, you've been quite successful so far. You've been very helpful to me in my career, lots of great advice, et cetera. Um, what do the next 10 years look like for you, and do you plan out <laughs> that far? Um, you know, it's, it's a good question. Um, I haven't planned out that far in the past. And the reason for that is because, you know, a a lot of my life makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Um, but I don't think it would have made sense or I would have made the same decisions, um, because I wouldn't have known about the opportunities. Um, like quite frankly, I didn't even know when I was playing, you know, the super Nintendo and the Nintendo when I was a kid that you could even be involved in creating video games if you weren't technical, if you weren't a developer, right? I never thought about that, right? So, so I think that one thing is I try not to expand what's pop, or I try not to um, stop uh, looking at what's possible, or, or sort of. I, I really like to think about how the things that I that I do, um, I might not even be aware of them, right? Constitution Dow is a great example of that. Never in my life did I think that I would be working on Constitution Dow. And to be clear, I was one of about twenty five people who are on that core team, lots of amazing backgrounds and lots of stories there. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I just would have never known. And I think that that's, um, that's one of the most important things to think about when it comes to technology um, and creativity and opportunity is that, yes, like you should be optimistic. You should try and put yourself in good positions, right? You should try and probably say yes to things that you might be a little bit worried about looking silly for doing, right? <laughs> But ultimately, I think that if I had said no or I had sort of tried to follow a more conventional path, I would have missed out on all of the amazing things that have happened in my life so far. So the answer is yes, I'm trying to think a little bit more about what the next, you know, the next decade looks like. Um, but considering I hadn't thought about it at all previously, 
um, I think it's gonna it's gonna look probably um, still a lot less uh, clear eyed and a lot less um, a, lo- a lot less um, structured than than people who might have um, taken you know uh, a much more sort of like predicted or planned path up until this point. I love that. I love that. So it seems like the lesson is you know say yes to opportunities, keep your eyes open. Um, have enough slack to do that, but also work really hard and, and good things can happen to you. I think it's right. You know, I, um, I think that it's one of those things where naturally you have to say uh, yes to less things, the more you sort of develop and like, you know, build, build a reputation or build a following or, um, you know, like, I think that ultimately the younger you are and the less experience you have, you don't really necessarily know what thing might be sort of a breakout for you. So ultimately you have to, you have to be more likely to say yes, but I'm trying to optimize for saying yes more than um, than a person who might and you know in sort of my stage, and I think that ultimately that was the thing that let me do Constitution DAO, uh, and I think that will ultimately be the thing that allows me to pursue you know things that I work on you know in the future. That's great. That's great. Well, Julian, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Sure. I think the um, the first thing is to to check out what I'm doing at OnDeck. Um, you know, we we really are focused on uh, founders and also angel investors. I split my time between working with people who are trying to find the missing pieces to get started with a company, from finding co-founders to finding you know the idea and the go to market. And then I also spend half of my time working with our program for angel investors, people who are looking to really develop a muscle. I describe uh, angel investing as strength and conditioning. Like you need to go to the gym multiple times a week to develop the angel investing muscle. You cannot just expect to invest in you know one or two companies a year and have that be the thing that ultimately helps you you know develop a skill set there. So so. You know, on deck, beyonddeck.com is our website. And then personally, you know, I'm on Twitter, um, unfortunately. Uh, that's uh, Julian Weiser. And then my website is just my last name, W-E-I-S-S-E-R.io, Weiser.io. That's great. Thanks so much. We'll put those links down there in the show notes. Cool. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.